0: In June 2020, as a result of sort of my reporting, the whole thing blows up. It's rotten from top to bottom, and it's exposed as a giant fraud.
1: Welcome back to The Laundry, everyone. I am Maritz, CEO of Strice, and with me I have my colleague, Frederick. And for the season finale, we wanted to share a crazy and incredible story told by Dan McCrum. Dan is an investigative reporter at the Financial Times who wrote the book Money Man. This is a story about the wild rise and crashing fall of the tech giant Wirecard that was exposed as a billion dollar accounting fraud. Today's guest Dan did some amazing reporting regarding the matter to expose and take down Wirecard. His investigations went on for years and in the beginning of 2019, he published his first article exposing fraud and money laundering inside the company. However, the world did not believe Dan and the Financial Times and decided to take the side of Wirecard. In June 2019, months after the first article came out, CEO of Wirecard Marcus Brown told Bloomberg that he does not focus on controversy, but innovation and growth.
2: Why is the, there so much controversy surrounding your company? So I think we have a tremendous growth development before
1: us. Uh, we have big innovations before us. So this is what we concentrate on. Uh, I do not. much look into controversies but my message is i think we have a very strong year before us and it would take another year of dan's relentless reporting to bring the fraud into light in june 2020 wirecard's fraud was exposed the ceo and key people were arrested and the share price plummeted
0: the former wirecard ceo has been arrested on suspicion of falsifying company revenue investigators said marcus braun is suspected of making revenue appear stronger and more attractive for investors and customers.
1: It turned out Wirecard had invented billions in sales, did not have $1.9 billion in cash on their balance sheet like they claimed, and there were also stories on money laundering. The story raises big questions about corporate fraud, money laundering, and the need for strong financial regulations. So we had to have Dan on the show to tell us what really happened.
0: So it's a bit of a crazy story. What you have is this European fintech company. It has something to do with payments. I mean, it calls itself the European PayPal. And what happens is it's seen as sort of the next big thing. Finally, Europe has a big tech company to rival the giants of Silicon Valley. In June 2020, as a result of sort of my reporting the whole thing blows up. It's rotten from top to bottom, and it's exposed as a giant fraud. I mean, I think the easiest way to talk about it is the story of Money Men, the book, and the investigation is about the investigation that I did into the company. And eight years ago, I'm chatting to an investor, and he says to me, Hey, Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? So I say, Yeah, sure, it's interesting definitely. Oh, you've got my attention right there. And so I start to look at this company. He tells me it's called Wirecard. And it's a tech company. It moves money around. And it seems to be too good to be true. It's growing really, really fast. It's really, really profitable. And in a way that is quite unusual. And when I look into it, there are basically two theories about what's going on. One is that it's a little bit fraudy. Maybe they're inventing their profits. And the other is maybe they're laundering money. If they're moving money around, then maybe they're helping every nasty type of business that you might imagine online to get paid for doing it. And quite a lot happens. But... This company goes from being a small little fintech that nobody's heard of to one of the largest and most successful companies in Germany. It goes into the DAX 30 index.
1: Entering the DAX 30, Germany's top 30 business index, is no small accomplishment. But no one seemed to get suspicious over the very promising growth of Wirecard. Dan and the Financial Times decided to take matters into their own hands and find out more about this sensation.
0: One of the crazy things about it is all of this stuff that you just wouldn't imagine happening in real life comes up in the story, and it starts to feel like, you know, we're living in some sort of, you know, summer spy thriller. And to begin with, it starts out with that each interaction with the company is a little bit strange, a little bit off-kilter. So, you know, to give you a couple of examples, when I first get in touch with them, knock on the door, say, hi, I'm from the Financial Times. You're an up-and-coming fintech. Let me write about you. And they're kind of like, no, thanks. Not really <laughs> interested in publicity. <laughs> and you're like, well, that's weird. And then I send them some questions going, I've had a look at, you know, your accounts, Some things seem a bit unusual. And they come back and say, well, this is very suspicious. Some hedge funds were asking us some very similar questions. Um, Are you in league with them? We're concerned the young newspaper might be naively giving credence to their crazy theories. And you're kind of like, oh, we've hit a nerve here. It's at the start of 2019 that the story really explodes. So as we're reporting on it, there's this whole steady series of escalations. Things get weirder and weirder. And, you know... We start to realize hackers are trying to break into our email. There are private detectives running all over the place, intimidating people. But, you know, what happens in the first couple of years, you know, I talked about these two different theories, and they have quite a thorough airing. You know, I write about the accounting fraud. Some other guys write about the money laundering side of things. And um, nothing happens. The accountants, Ernst & Young, one of the world's most famous accounting firms, just keeps signing off every year, says everything's fine. And the German authorities investigate some of the critics of Wirecard. You know, say, oh, they're just trying to manipulate the share price. So everybody basically gives up. And the key moment, the absolute breakthrough, is in October 2018. So Wirecard has just entered the DAX index. It's worth almost $30 billion at this stage. And, you know, the chief executive is being treated like some sort of tech visionary. You know, he he talks in all this sort of nonsense about a cashless future. And he starts dressing like he's Steve Jobs, the Apple founder. You know, black turtleneck. Strutting about, you know, with all this sort of meaningless phrases. But at that moment, something amazing happens. This whistleblower gets in touch with me. And... They're in Singapore, and they've encountered a whole bunch of little frauds going on in the Singapore office. You know, backdated contracts, people forging invoices, you know, trying to send 2 million euros out the door to their friends. But the weird thing is, when they conduct a whole investigation, you know, they bring in lawyers, they do everything correctly, suddenly realize this is getting quite serious and send it back to head office in Munich. And the whole thing's squashed. Mm-hmm. They go, thank you very much, we'll take care of it now. And one of the lawyers involved is forced out. Not but he realizes he's going to be forced out. And so he takes a copy of all of the documents. And because he's seen the stories that I'd written about Wirecard before, he gets in touch. Actually, it's, it's not him who gets in touch. So what happened was The, the mum put me in touch with her son A guy called Pav He's happy to you know, be identified now That it's all over and, and he sent me some key documents From their internal investigation And you know I've got it on my phone And I could sort of look at it And I'm sort of scrolling down It looks a bit sort of corporate And then words start jumping out Like fraud, money laundering, forgery And so You know mackerel, this is the real deal. So I sort of jump <laughs> on a plane to Singapore, go and meet him, and he sort of talks me through everything that has happened. Or he talks me through everything that has happened to him. And so I spend three days there, sort of going through every detail, trying to get the whole story, and then I come back and basically sit inside a bunker inside the Financial Times for two months, going through these huge reams of documents. I mean, I had like entire inboxes from the guys who were doing it and could sort of map out the fraud, trying to get to the point where where we could say, okay, here's enough evidence, we can write the story.
1: After nearly four years of investigations, Dan was finally ready to publish his story about fraud at Wirecard in the beginning of 2019 with the help from Pav, the whistleblower.
0: And this is when it all starts to go completely crazy as well, isn't it? It has this quality of, like, sort of... I mean, I say cat and mouse, but, you know, as I talk about in the book, we sort of... It was like hand-to-hand combat. Because I guess what's really interesting and sort of one of the broader lessons you can take from it is at the moment, at the start of January 2019, we're ready to publish our story. And so as soon as we publish it, the share price drops by about eight billion euros, which, you know, if you're looking at it, well, I mean, I remember looking at it going, blimey, I hope this story's right. It's sort of very exciting, but also, you know, a bit of a sick feeling in your stomach as well. But at that moment, we're only talking about, you know, 30 euros worth of fake contracts. And if Wirecard had said, yeah, you got us, well done, right, yeah, we're going to clean up, we're going to fire everybody, yeah, we really need to improve things. They might have got away with it, but they didn't do that. Because as my boss says, you know, they're criminals. They can't think like a normal company. What they do instead is they deny everything, and they basically attempt to frame me for insider trading, cooking up this story that I had leaked the story to some stock market speculators before it was published. And that almost worked. I mean, the German authorities started to investigate me and my colleagues, they stopped a form of speculation known as short selling Mm
2: -hmm. in the company
0: for two months. I mean, they did all sorts of things to protect the company and they very nearly worked. But also what it meant was the Financial Times couldn't walk away from the story because they basically said the newspaper was corrupt. So it sort of becomes this battle between them or us.
1: This is a remarkable turn of events. As a journalist, Dan is used to reporting on stories, not becoming the story.
0: I think one of the craziest moments of the Wirecard investigation was we're in the middle of the battle with the company. Lots of crazy things happened. But as it's reaching its peak and we're in this battle... With this huge technology company, I'm saying it's a fraud. I've ended up investigated by the police for writing stories in a newspaper, and we're trying to convince everyone that we're right. And suddenly, my boss pulls me pulls me to one side and says, "Dan, we need to have a talk away from any electronics." So we put our phones down. We go to a room with no windows inside the building. He's like. There's something I've been meaning to tell you. There's a Russian angle here. One of the main executives, the one who we knew had been pushing back against us, well, he seems to have some Russian friends. He's been trying to impress speculators in London by waving around some top-secret documents which have the recipe for the Russian nerve gas Novichok on them. And... It was at that point that you start to think, hang on a second, who is protecting this company?
1: The executive that was pushing back on Dan and the Financial Times was Jan Marsalek, Wirecard's chief operating officer. And during this time, Dan finds out more about both him and the people at Wirecard who are trying to frame him. As Dan talks about his investigations, one question keeps coming up. How come no one else sees that these are really shady people?
0: The, I mean, the characters are amazing, aren't they? Especially <laughs> Jan Marsalek, who's this Austrian whiz kid. Like, he drops out of high school to start a tech company. And he doesn't go to university. He doesn't even learn to drive, he says, because he's too busy. You know, this is a man in a hurry. And... I think what you get to see is sort of, you know, part of the, a lot of the book is this sort of arc of his development, because he's on the inside and I'm on the outside, and we never meet, we never even talk, but we're sort of in opposition to each other, and he somehow gets promoted way beyond his ability, and is constantly running around trying to keep the plate spinning, you know, coming up with these hair-brained schemes, which nearly destroy the company. But somehow he manages to, like, get through it and improvise some solution and get on to the next thing. But to the outside world, he is the most charming, charismatic person they have ever met. Like, he wears these Keton shirts, which are like $1,000 each, and these amazing sharp suits. And you sort of see time and again, people come into his orbit, and they start dressing like him. And then what I discovered sort of, you know, as the story goes on and more when I was researching the book is that he had some very strange friends. So he's trying to hang out with like a Libyan militia and he's a workaholic so he can't go on holiday. But then, you know, his friends are taking the mickey out of him like, you know, why can't you relax? And he says, well, you know, what I I want to do is... Something nobody else in the world can do. So one of his friends, a Russian mercenary, who's just hanging out with him, says, tell you what, how about we go for a little stroll around Syria? My Mm. friends have just cleared Palmyra from ISIS so we can go and take a look around. And that's the kind of thing he does to relax. And so, yeah, and so as we're sort of in this battle and we're trying to defend the reputation of the FT, prove the crooks, we start to learn Oh, well, hang on a second. This guy seems to be hanging out with some very dangerous people, and maybe Wirecard is protected after all.
1: Determined to expose the fraud, Financial Times decides to travel around the world and visit different local Wirecard offices to find the proof they need to make the world listen.
0: So we send one of my colleagues, Stefania Palmer, to the Philippines because we're looking for the smoking gun here. What is it that is going to prove to the world that this company is a fake? That there's a big lie at the heart of it and it's not what it seems. So she goes and finds this business, which is supposedly one of Wirecard's best customers. And it's in a shopping mall in Manila. She walks up to the office and there on the window are a bunch of stickers that say, yeah, this is a payments company. But on the other window, there's also stickers for a tour bus company, which takes <laughs> tourists to the casino. And so she goes inside, and there are bus drivers walking in and out, and you know you can get tickets to go to whichever casino you want to, but there doesn't seem to be any payments processing happening anywhere. And that was kind of one of the moments where you're like, this is it. There's really nothing to this at all. How are they lying to the world?
1: Lying to the world is one thing, but I was wondering how Wirecard was able to keep up the lie internally as well. For all these years, thousands of people were employed at Wirecard, supposedly working on the future of payments. How did they explain all the profits to all its employees? Did people not notice that billions of dollars were missing? How were they able to do it?
0: Well, it's really interesting the lies we tell ourselves or the things we look past and forgive if you're emotionally invested in something, you know, like financially invested as well. So I spoke to a lot of the employees and Wirecard had about 6,000 staff and the great majority of them, I think, weren't directly involved in the fraud. And what the company had was this great cover story. Which goes back to these two theories about it. So, what it said was to protect its reputation, when it got payments processing customers who were a little bit racy, you know, operating in gray areas, so it did, you know, things like gambling, pornography, multi level marketing schemes, Wirecard wouldn't process the payments for them itself, it would send them to a friend. And so the friends would take care of dealing with all the payments and things. And then it would sort of send back as a thank you a nice big fat commission. And so it turned out that Wirecard had three of these special friends. And by the time you know we get to this battle with the FT, they're responsible for half of the company's sales and basically all of its profits. And quite a few people inside Wirecard had noticed because you know they were literally asking the question saying well hang on a second if like six people can run this operation with Wirecard's friends and make all this money what are the other 6,000 people doing but at the same time there was that sort of willful blindness you know you can Mm. literally see emails with people going oh is it that part of the business yeah, I don't want anything to do with that smiley face. You know, Mm. they would sort of look away and go, yeah, I don't really want to know about it. And so the, the sort of the money laundering became a cover story for the fraud. And that actually worked externally as well. Because I think a lot of responsible stock market investors looked at Wirecard and said, well, it's probably operating in these gray areas. You know, it's doing things like processing payments for online gambling and the international authorities don't seem to care about it. So if they don't, why should I? And that probably explains why it's so profitable and why it doesn't really talk about the details of its business.
1: Eventually, Dan's story sparked an external audit forcing Wirecard to use KPMG instead of EY, the regular auditor, to have a peek in their books.
0: It's remarkable, isn't it? If you're a company accused of a serious crime, you get to investigate yourself. So we write a story in October 2019 saying, this is how the fraud is happening. These are all the fake customers. And here are the underlying documents which prove it. And instead of the police knocking down the doors and saying, right, let's get to the bottom of this, Wirecard appoints a second accounting firm, KPMG, to come in and read all the work. And it all comes down to essentially two pieces of paper and the small matter of 1.9 billion euros. And so the special order, you basically have a set of accountants from KPMG, a set of accountants from EY, and a bunch of Wirecard lawyers. And they all decide that they need to go to the Philippines because (laughs) this is where Wirecard has told them all the money is. And to meet the lawyer who is looking after this money. Because it's in special bank accounts set up between Wirecard and its special friends. So they all fly to Manila. And they go to the office of this lawyer. And they walk in and discover it has a YouTube studio in it. And the guy who is looking after all this money for this European financial institution has a YouTube channel with 100,000 subscribers. He's got one of those little plaques. And he gives advice on things like divorce and family law. And he walks in and he's like, spends half an hour talking about how important and influential he is. You know, he knows the president. He went to university with him. And all of this sort of mad things. And all the accountants and lawyers are sitting there sort of watching this half going what is this weird crazy thing that's happening but at the same time they're like at least I can put a tick in my box now you know Mm. something's happening it's not it's not that there's nobody here and so they go downstairs and there are cars waiting for them with a police motorcycle escort and they jump in and you know and the lawyers are thinking well we're right next to the financial district we'll probably just pop over there to head office and find out about these accounts and then they drive with these police guys lights flashing for 40 minutes and pull up up on some sort of dirt road where you know there's a garage, there's a bicycle shop, there's like dogs running around and they go into this tiny little bank branch where there's barely enough room for this big group of German businessman in suits and one little guy pops up and is like hi hi yes can I help you and they're like hi yeah we're here to talk about Wirecard he's like Wirecard what and he looks at the lawyer and it's like ah Wirecard yes and he produces an envelope and he hands the envelope to the lawyer and the lawyer hands the envelope to the accountants and inside is a piece of paper which says yes there are three of these special bank accounts and there's a billion euros in them. You know, two of my favorite touches about that particular letter is that there are spelling mistakes in it. Mm -mm. (laughs) Like they they misspell the name of one of the subsidiaries, one of the Wirecard companies, which is supposedly holding the money. And the other is that it's signed by the assistant branch manager. And this is the basis for, you know, Wirecard's whole business, two You know, billions in cash, and like the one of the incredible thing is, it still takes another three months before the whole thing is exposed and uh, Wirecard comes crashing down.
1: For all these years, Wirecard managed to hold the scam up. They reported incredible sales numbers, and billions of dollars were invented year after year. Dan actually suspects the fraud dates all the way back to 2010, which means Wirecard. Kept it up for a decade.
0: Yeah, and the lesson is, I think, that small crimes become big ones. So, you know, the simple history of Wirecard is that, you know, a distributor for vans trainers sits next to a pornographer on a plane. And he ends up getting into the business. But he needs some way to take payments, so he starts the company, which is Wirecard. And everybody keeps doubling down and doubling down again. And it becomes this very large and profitable business. But it's basically money laundering. And the world changes and, you know, it becomes more dangerous. And, you know, porn and gambling aren't the same businesses in 2010 that they were at the start of the Internet. And basically our guy, Jan Marcelek, he gets put in charge. And he's been overpromoted. He's still very charming, but he doesn't know what he's doing. And he's sort of scrabbling around for the next big thing. And that's the moment when someone who the Atlantic calls the dark lord of the internet shows up. And it's basically... There was a period back in the late noughties when everywhere you looked online were adverts for things like acai berries. So the acai berry, you know, with super anti... Super... Mm antioxidants and you know they would help with weight loss with everything else basic sort of nutraceuticals i think is Mm. the word and this business that they found was basically rampaging around the world stealing money from people by sort of signing them up for free trials for acai berries and things like that and as soon as they got their credit card they would just hit it with as many charges as possible and For a very short space of time, it's this amazing business. And then the whole thing blows up because the U.S. authorities come in and shut it all down. And that's the moment where I think Wirecard wants to keep giving its good numbers to the stock market and it has to turn to fraud to try and make up the difference.
1: In our conversation with Dan, we also talked about money laundering and the importance of financial regulations.
2: So, you mentioned that they did a lot of money laundering with these funds. So, how? How did they do it? Like, what was the scheme going on to launder these illicit funds? So, what they were quite
0: clever about was doing different things in different jurisdictions. So, to give you an example, they would be processing payments for online gambling in the US, which was illegal but they would miscode the payments. So as, it, as everything went through, you know, the visa system, it would appear in your credit card statement as, like, you just purchased golf balls or flowers instead of visiting, you know, an online casino. And the money would be processed through Wirecard in Germany. It would legally then go through a shell company based in the north of England where... Um, You know, the directors of that company would have been recruited from a local pub, paid Mm. £50 to put their names on the documents and not to ask any questions. And then the money would go from there to a tax haven like Mauritius or, you know, the British Virgin Islands. And so no one authority really sees the whole thing. And, you you know, one of the great ironies in the story is that there are these moments when different authorities try to investigate or could have investigated and you know the u.s department of justice actually does try to do it but the germans don't seem particularly interested in helping and so nothing happens
2: but that's got to be one of the key takeaways i think in terms of the modern economy as well in terms of how do you regulate a fintech company
0: i think several different jurisdictions all show a general lack of interest in financial crime and I think the broad principle or lesson is that if you want to stop gigantic financial crimes like Wirecard you have to start with small ones because then you'll get practiced at prosecuting them you'll learn how to detect them and you'll also stop them before they become gigantic crimes you know we can point a finger at Germany and say they should have done more but also London was home to a lot of the enablers, the lawyers, the private detectives who sort of helped protect Wirecard, and also one of these paperwork factories that they used was up in the north of England as well, and that was just abusing weaknesses in the UK system of corporate regulation. So, I mean, the one thing that I would love to see and I think would solve a tremendous amount of problems all over the world is very simple. Publish the identity of ultimate beneficial owners of all companies. You know, a limited company is a privilege. It protects you from unlimited liability so that you can't be sued out of existence. You can experiment. You can launch businesses without the risk that you lose everything. And that is great and very valuable, but it should also come with some responsibilities to identify yourself to the rest of the world.
1: I think the trend is that, like, we are here in the Nordics and, you know, corporate information has been public for a long time.
0: So the Nordics are quite good in terms of public accountability and identity, but what about all your private equity companies? You know, what about all your companies who are using shell companies or corporate structures in notable tax havens? Fine, there Mm. might be legitimate reasons for them, but... Why don't they own up? Why doesn't everybody put pressure on these jurisdictions to
2: publish UBOs Mm. and all the rest of it? Getting everyone on board, basically, of of creating a UBO register across the world will be an immense challenge. But everyone needs to be basically a thumbs up vote in terms of getting it done.
1: I was also just curious to know, do you think there's a lot of other frauds out there that are just waiting to be uncovered?
0: Yeah, I mean, part of the fun of the book was both telling the side of the story that no one knew. You know, finally I could talk about all the crazy things which happened to us. But also, put in that context, because these are age-old tales, you know, greed, believing things are too good to be true, and you see them time and again, and, you know, every sort of cycle or every however long it takes, you know, what's it, 20 years since... Enron the big US energy company Mm. was shown to be a complete fraud so every so often a really big one comes along and grabs your attention but I think there's a lot more out there
1: yeah what do you think the next one will be are you working on a story right now
0: (laughs) I have some very promising and interesting leads that's for sure
2: but what do you think you have Dan that sort of people in general don't That makes you able to just number one spot and find out that this is probably something we need to investigate and also have the sort of nerves to follow it along and having to battle basically to get the truth out there a lot of people would have just given up
0: I mean I think for me Wirecard became a little bit of an obsession because it was a puzzle that I really had to solve you know where is its money coming from what is really going on inside it and I just couldn't leave it alone. A bit like a dog with a bone. I, you know... It gnawed away at me and I wanted to solve it. And also because we'd encountered so many dirty tricks. You know. At one point, there was $10 million on the table to make the stories about Wirecard go away. And... When that sort of stuff happens, that is so far beyond the realm of experience. Of mm. anyone at the Financial Times, we like, okay, there's definitely something up here. But it was never anything that we could write. They were too clever about it. And so I think I was just determined to get to the bottom of it and was convinced that I was right. But that's quite unusual. Most people are just looking for a good stock market investment. And they don't need to do that much work. You just have to satisfy yourself. Is this a good bet? And besides, I've got 100 other companies I'm investing in. I don't need to spend too much time. It's growing quickly. I like their chief executive. He's a charming chap. You know, what more do you need? And so I actually spoke to an investigator, Susanna Krober, who did go and do some great due diligence. She went and knocked on doors all over Asia. And she told me, you know, she's standing on a dirt track, looking for an address which doesn't seem to exist, you know, in an area which is notable for some pretty disreputable businesses. Blazing sun, really humid. And she's like, what am I doing here? Like, I'm going half mad looking for a non-existent building. Who in their right mind is going to do this just for a stock market investment?
1: How has this story and exposing it changed your life?
0: I mean, it's been terrific. (laughs) I mean, the, you know, I've been able to write a book and the joy of it is to sort of reveal all of the journalism that people don't normally know about Mm. and to tell all these unbelievable things which happen. So, you know, as a journalist, to be given the gift of such a crazy story, you know, to have whistleblowers trust you to get the truth out. I mean, it's the best job in the world. So I consider myself very lucky to have done it. It's great fun talking about these uh, crazy stories, isn't it?
1: Okay, that's a wrap. Really pleased to have you on the show, Dan. So happy that you can join us and talk to us about the story on Wirecard.
2: Super interesting listening to you, Dan. Have a great
0: summer. Thank you so much for having me on and for the interest.
1: Having read Dan's book, Money Man, I can't recommend it enough. The book takes you on a crazy roller coaster ride that the Wirecard story is. And in this podcast, we barely scratched the surface. The twist and turn, the crazy characters and the billion dollars made you think you were reading a spy thriller, not a story about one of Germany's top 30 companies. The story showed the importance of investigative journalism and the importance of financial regulations or the consequences lack of the latter can have. Financial crime have big consequences for society. Wirecard was at its peak valued at $27 billion before its stock collapsed and people lost their money. In addition, through its money laundering scheme, it was able to take illicit money into the clean economy. This was the season finale of The Laundry, and we thank you so much for tuning in every week to listen about the fight against financial crime. We can't wait to share more stories and conversations with you again this fall.